This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. How long will you grieve over Saul? As we read last week in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, the king, sinned grievously against the Lord through a consistent rebellion. Chapter 15 ended with Samuel grieving over Saul's fall from grace. Grieving, as we meditated upon last week, over others is good. It helps us remain humble and low, as well as keeping all people in our prayers. Yet there's a limit to such, as God reminded Samuel at the beginning of our lesson. Such reminds me of the angels or the men that appeared after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ as the disciples were gazing into the clouds. And the men asked, why are you gazing into the clouds? It's time to go forth. There's a time for everything, as we're reminded in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, as we read, the grieving period by God's mandate was over. We do not know from the text how long Samuel spent in this state. We know, though, from this chapter onwards, as we read, how Saul began to fade and David began to rise up by God's hand in preparation to ascend to the throne at the proper time. This morning, let us reflect on the anointing of this new king of Israel, David. First, after God asked why Samuel still grieved, he was commanded the following in verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. For the prophet, the reality of anointing a new king to replace the king he had anointed years earlier was moving forward. In the normal course of how things went with kings in the ancient world, the expectation was for the son of the king, the oldest son of the king, to take the throne at the death of his father. And as we read earlier in this book, Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan, was a great man, a great warrior, a great man of God. This expectation, though, was shattered for Israel with her first king. In many ways, we can look at this occurrence through the lens of the fact that God ruled his nation. He, in this, appointed the leadership. Saul failed in his faithfulness and was replaced. With this commandment to anoint someone new, Samuel says the following in verse 2. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The background here is that in chapter 13 and later in chapter 15, Samuel, the prophet, communicated God's verdict that he would anoint someone else to replace Saul. And this was told directly to King Saul. 
he knew what was coming. In our sin nature, especially when backed against a wall, as Saul was here, the danger is to respond rashly. Saul was rejected. In such knowledge, he did not seek to get low before God, to repent. He did not seek to ask the Lord's help. He did not submit. Rather, he continued down the path that he had been following of rebellion through seeking as he did later to kill the man God had anointed to replace him. Often in our lives of faith, fear can grip us and even stop us from doing what we should be doing. Yes, times of grieving, praying, and waiting are needed in the Christian faith. They are needed for the times we are impelled to go and do God's work when called upon. They are times of preparation. Our call in the faith is as 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 reminds us. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. No, we do not have the call today upon us as Christians, as Samuel did, to anoint kings. Yet we are called continually to turn from evil, to do good. This is to seek peace and to pursue it. The wicked will seek to paralyze us into a fearful state to try to get us to turn rather toward evil and away from good. If we do what is right, this world, as Samuel feared Saul would do, lashes out. If we turn away from evil, from many of the things this world deems as good, this world, as Samuel feared Saul would do, lashes out. To answer Samuel's concern, God said the following in verses 2 and 3. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. The act of anointing David would take place within the context of worship, sacrificing to God. The end of this section finds Samuel asked the following question by the elders of the city. Do you come peaceably? And Samuel answers affirmative, that he comes in peace to worship and sacrifice to God. When we face the fears of the world around us, and there are many fears instilled by this world, it's best such are faced with a foundation of faith in Jesus Christ and worship of him. Do we face this world alone in our own strength, not really seeking God tangibly, faithfully by our worship? If we do this, we do ourselves a disservice. We need to worship Almighty God, to partake of his holy supper, to be sustained and aided in his grace, to be equipped to give all our cares and our fears To Jesus Christ. Samuel here in obeying God to go in the context of worship to anoint this new king dispelled his fears. If we are going through the times in our lives of anxiety and fear, are we clinging to Christ in our worship and all the means of grace that he has provided us? Or are we powering through alone on our own strength? When we go, 
We go in the strength and the grace of Christ alone, giving our fears to him. Our last section, verses 6 through 13, speaks of the process to come to the final choice of David, or God's choice of David. For the pick of Saul earlier in this book, things were a bit easier, if you remember. Saul, as we read, stood a a full head length above all the other men of Israel. He looked the part, if you will, of a warrior king, or at least how a warrior king should look like in human eyes. Samuel went into this process with this background of how things went in choosing Saul. Yes, Saul was God's choice. Yet with this next pick of God, it was different, yet very much in line with how God had chosen leaders throughout Israel's history. Verse 6 states, When they came, he looked on Eliab, And thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Samuel looked here through appearances. With Eliab fitting the bill as Saul had before in terms of looking the part of a king. And God gives us this answer in verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because... I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Throughout the history of God's people, those we would not think highly of in terms of human standards were chosen by God to lead his people. God, as he said, does not look on the outward appearances, but upon the heart of man. We can look at examples such as Jacob chosen over his brother Esau, Joseph chosen all over all of his older brothers, and so forth. The ancient model and how we often look at things today is that the firstborn, the strongest, should receive the very best, the mantle of leadership when the time arrives. Yet of all the sons of Jesse, many of them already warriors in Israel's army, God sought the youngest, the one that was charged with care of the sheep. He was a shepherd. All of us have the propensity of seeking appearance over the substance of the heart. Since we cannot look, though, into the hearts of people, we seek what is presented to us outwardly. In this, we tend to put up a face we want others to see, the very best of us while hiding the very worst of us. All of us have this propensity to keep up appearances, to make it look like we have it all together. And when someone in our midst exhibits weakness in our upkeep of our appearances, we must be careful that we do not point out the weaknesses of others in the hope of keeping up our appearances, to remain pristine in our own eyes compared to the weak. Through all of this, we miss the mark of how God calls us to live with each other by a loving faith through waiting upon him, waiting upon him together as the church. He does not call us to be apart via the appearances we often perpetuate. 
He calls us as the body of Jesus Christ, all faithful baptized members, to remain vitally connected. The entire body, from the head to the toes, the body of Christ must be welcoming of every part of the body. For instance, in terms of an example of seeking appearances, how do we treat others that have sinned against us? And the person that sinned against us repents and we forgive them. Often, the appearance-based Christian will make the person that supposedly they supposedly forgave, forgave feel bad. Often, it's a veneer of, I'm better than you. My appearances are in better condition than your appearances. Yes, I forgave you, but I'll still make you pay for what you did to me at every chance I get. This appearance-based Christianity is false, and it drives others away in despair. If we value more appearance in a situation than to submit to Christ and his forgiveness to live together in love, we're not living in submission to Christ, but rather our serving self. We also can do the same when we contend for the faith placing ourselves in a sort of a superior status to the point we lose sight of the fact that we are redeemed sinners by the grace of Jesus Christ, that we need constant help. We do not have it all together because we need God always, even on our very best day in our estimation. The appearance-minded Christian will approach telling others about Christ from a worldly perspective, employing human-centered methods based in pride. In the the end, their defense of the faith is not with gentleness and respect, but rather with roughness and contempt. Again, such is an appearance-based Christianity. When David arrived from tending the sheep, we read the following in verses 12 and 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The spirit as described came upon David from that day forward. While, as we read earlier with Saul, it came upon him only in a temporary manner. When speaking of the anointing here, note that things were not immediate. A lot was to come for David in terms of God preparing him to take the throne at the proper time. In many ways, we can look at the rest of 1 Samuel as the training and preparing of David by God to take the kingdom. As we will read, this preparation for David was marked with joy and hardship. He went from great favor in the eyes of King Saul to a hunted man marked for death due to the king's jealousy. His story of this journey was humble though, never wavering in his resolve to wait upon the Lord, to not hurt the Lord's anointed, 
He left the when and the how in terms of Saul leaving through his death up to God. Yes, David was anointed. Part of being set apart by God, whether for the high office of king in the Old Testament or as all of us as believers to serve Jesus Christ, is prayer, worship, waiting, and doing his work in the state of life he has placed us. Contentment. When we are anointed with oil and holy baptism, it is the start of a lifetime of serving Jesus Christ and others as his kingdom of priests, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our life is a life of proclamation. And it starts every week as we all are here now together in the act of worship, proclaiming Jesus Christ through feeding on his body and blood at the table, nourished to go forth from this place in his name, in his power, by his grace. As Samuel was called out of his grieving over the lost Saul, we are daily called out of our various types of grieving that keep us stagnant, to go forth in the love of Christ. Jesus, as we read in the gospel today, said, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Samuel's fear was what Saul might do to him if he went to seek and anoint a new king. We too have the threat from the Sauls of this world that do not want us to seek the lost. For the Lord Jesus Christ to anoint as God's children, as a kingdom of priests. We are called to do all we do, starting with our worship. Worship prepares us to go forth, to catch men for God. Worship distills our fears by a continual reminder that we indeed are the children of God and that he will not forsake us. Worship erodes our delusions of appearances to get us upon our knees with fellow redeemed sinners to repent and to hear anew that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Worship gathers us around the altar side by side with fellow broken redeemed people to be revived by his body and blood and enabled to go forth in the love of Christ, casting our fears to him. Worship pulls us from a state of grieving to a state of going forth in the name of Christ. Let us go forth, closing with these words in our epistle. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Amen. Amen.